Psalm 104. Praise the Lord, my soul. Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. The Lord wraps himself in light as with a garment. He stretches out the heavens like a tent and lays the beams of his upper chambers on their waters. He makes the clouds his chariot and rides on the wings of the wind. He makes winds his messengers, flames of fire his servants. He set the earth on its foundations. It can never be moved. You covered it with the watery depths as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains, but at your rebuke, the waters fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took to flight. They flowed over the mountains. They went down into the valleys to the place you assigned for them. You set a boundary they cannot cross. Never again will they cover the earth. He makes springs pour water into the ravines. It flows between the mountains. They give water to all the beasts of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. The birds of the sky nest by the waters. They sing among the branches. He waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The land is satisfied by the fruit of his work. He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth, wine that gladdens human hearts, oil to make their faces shine, and bread that sustains their hearts. The trees of the Lord are well watered, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. There the birds make their nests. The stork has its home in the junipers. The high mountains belong to the wild goats. The crags are a refuge for the hyrax. He made the moon to mark the seasons, and the sun knows when to go down. You bring darkness, it becomes night. And all the beasts of the forest prowl. The lions roar for their prey and seek their food from God. The sun rises and they steal away. They return and lie down in their dens. Then people go out to their work, to their labor, until evening. How many are your works, Lord? In wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. There is the sea vast and spacious, teeming with creatures beyond number, living things both large and small. There the ships go to and fro, and Leviathan, which you formed to frolic there. All creatures look to you to give them their food at the proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. When you hide your face, They are terrified. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. When you send your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. And let's stand. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. He who looks at the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke, I will sing to the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. May my meditation be pleasing to him as I rejoice in the Lord. 
but may sinners vanish from the earth and the wicked be no more. Praise the Lord, my soul. Praise the Lord. Take a seat again. Usually I thank the reader at the start. Thank the readers is what I should be doing today. Thank you for participating in that psalm. I'm going to pray one of the phrases from it just as we get underway looking at that last little section. And it is our prayer that our meditation would be pleasing to you, Heavenly Father, as we rejoice in you. Amen. Yeah, I'm glad we've got the whole psalm on the service sheet. Easy for you to refer to other bits of it. Uh, We've reached in our journey through the psalm, verse 31 today, and I want that really to be the text for what I'm going to say, or at least the introduction to it. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. It occurs to me that's a lovely answer to the secular longings of our day. We're inclined to think... May the glory of the planet endure forever. Or may humanity rejoice in their work, all our amazing achievements as a human race. Glory to man in the highest. No, says Psalm 104, God is the maker and master of the universe. He's the one who looks at the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. He is eternal, altogether more permanent, more powerful than the human race than the mightiest building blocks he's assembled in the planet, the mountains, and so on. So I take it to verse 31. Let me read it again. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. Is not a prayer for something which might just not happen. So he's not saying, I really hope God will rejoice in his works, but maybe he won't. There's no uncertainty about it any more than the first bit of the verse is iffy. He can't be praying there. I really hope God's glory will last forever. But you never know, that might not happen. The psalmist is not praying that something uncertain might possibly happen. He's rejoicing in a certainty. Ever since the creation of the world, where God pronounced everything good, very good, God has rejoiced in his works. And... His glory will never be eclipsed in the future either. His being and his rule and his divine power are not under threat, nor will they ever be. So he's expressing his confidence in God's joy now and God's glory for all eternity. Those are not in doubt at all. We've certainly seen as we wandered through the psalm over the last four weeks how God rejoices in every area of creation. Even stuff we aren't aware of, I suppose you'd have to say. There's a nice story told by John Piper in one of his early sermons at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis in the States. I guess when his children were still young and growing up. It was about when the magazine they ordered as a family, Ranger Rick, used to plop through the door. And uh, on one occasion, he was reading it. There was a feature on the European water spider, which I'm sure you're all very familiar with. Well, anyway, Piper learned that this spider lives at the bottom of lakes but breathes air. So he was intrigued. How does it do it? Well, it does a somersault on the surface of the water 
And as it does, so it catches an air bubble and traps it in some holes on its sort of midriff and swims back to the bottom where it banks the air bubble in a silk web it's done among the pondweed. Then it goes back up to the surface and brings down more air, bubble after bubble after bubble, until it has a little balloon of air where it can do its spidery things. It can live and breathe and eat and mate and so on. And John Piper imagines a conversation with the Almighty as he, John, had read about that spider with his mouth open in amazement. And God smiling, yes, John, and I've been enjoying that little piece of art of mine for thousands of years before Ranger Rick or you or anyone else knew it existed. Just like I enjoy, God could have added the millions of other wonders which you don't see, but which I survey every single day with gladness. God rejoices in his creation, despite the fact, I think we referred to this last week, that all is not well with creation. I was um, calling to mind as I prepped this, I'm really cross, I I was looking for the TNG um, flip chart. There's this lethal piece of equipment somewhere on the church property that um, easily removes hands and fingers and digits And I can't find it, so I can't do the visual aid I heard about 30 years ago about thinking Christianly, where we were encouraged to think of every issue in the context of four different points on a bit of paper. Uh, Top left, creation. All good. We thought about that in the summer course. Bottom left, fall where human rebellion came under the judgment of God and from which point onwards creation itself is out of joint. I think Nick prayed about creation groaning earlier. That's what uh, scripture says. Our psalm talked about God turning his face away from his creatures and turning creatures back to dust. That's a reality in a fallen world. So first two points on this rectangle. Creation, fall. But God hasn't abandoned his world. Far from it, his spirit is committed to renewing creation, we saw last week. So a third point, this is bottom right on my rectangle that you can't see because I'm not drawing it. Um, A third point follows. It's implied in this psalm and more explicit in the Bible's witness elsewhere. Creation, fall, redemption. Death and decay will be defeated. And with our New Testament perspective, we know that this happens supremely through the Lord of creation, Jesus Christ, coming into our world, uh, living as the perfect human, dying for our sin, taking on himself the penalty and the consequences of human disobedience. So some of you are doing the drawing now. This is so exciting to know that the visual aid lives on. This is great. Creation, full redemption. A final point on this complete the rectangle, top right, new creation. And that's the rectangle. I suppose any issue you wanted to think about Christianly, you could consider profitably within those four points, from those four distinct vantage points. All four points are at least implicit in the psalm as we've traveled through it, from creation to new creation. And verse 31, where we started tonight, highlights that thought that God is on the throne from start to finish. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. 
May the Lord rejoice in his works. But what about us? Given that for the moment we live in a fallen world, it's a glorious world from creation onwards, and it will be recreated with even greater glory. But how do we live in the here and now? That's the question I'm left with as we get to this point in the psalm. In a fallen world, awaiting glory in the meantime. Now I've got three brief bullet points in the closing verses from verse 33 onwards. Three things for us to think about or do. Singing, meditating, and waiting. Okay? Singing in verse 33. I will sing to the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. And that's a commitment of the psalmists. Even if at times, I guess, life is not easy. He's not saying, um, this is a sort of Mary Poppins Thing. Is it Mary Poppins? I'm not sure. Whenever I feel afraid, I whistle a happy tune. Mary Poppins? Sound of music. Sound of music. Okay, sound of music. Thank you. I got it. I knew it's one of those things. Not saying that sort of um, don't worry, be happy approach to life. The distinctive thing biblically is that in praise, I sing to the Lord. So it's not just sing, a missile, sing or whistle a happy tune. He is the content and the focus of the praise. And it was great uh, reading that psalm through in full. I love the way in that psalm the praise is both horizontal and vertical. So the audience is sometimes other people on a horizontal level. The psalmist is telling them things about God. And the pronoun as he describes God is, is he or him. But at other times, the audience is God himself. So there's a vertical direction. He's singing to God as you, singing to the Lord. How many are your works, Lord? In wisdom, you made them all. And in fact, you don't really have to choose. The praise is telling other people how wonderful God is. Listen up, he's great. And the praise is telling God how wonderful he is as part of my relationship with him. So you always get that fusion of vertical and horizontal in biblical praise. And we always try to have, in the course of a service, I think a sort of unwritten rule, we always try and have praise that is horizontal, where we're singing facts about God, and vertical worship as well, adoration expressed to God in, uh, in what we're singing. Now, it's funny having a point about singing. I know some of us here are not great singers. I think the women generally do better than the men. But I know not all of us um, particularly enjoy singing. Well, don't tell me that everyone who ever sang this psalm in Old Testament worship was cathedral choir material. I'm sure they weren't. Even if we struggle to hold a tune, if we sing and give ourselves to it, and participate, we will be a blessing alongside other singers. And it's interesting to me that he says, glorifying God in song is a key activity of life. Life itself, twice he says it, all my life, as long as I live. So um, 
we need to practice. I bet we're going to be doing this in heaven. I'm not looking forward to the dancing that there'll be in heaven. I probably ought to do a bit of practicing dancing. I won't do that now. We're going to do something slightly unscripted for a sermon and break in the middle of it to sing. And I did a rehearsal of this with um, David and Sarah Brock this morning, and it went well, so I'm emboldened to do it. I've got in my mind a song that we used to sing back in the, uh, the glory days of the 80s. It was around. I look at, look at the congregation there. We've got about 35 people here. So 11 of us, uh, 11 or 12 of us have got to manage to hold the line, okay? This is a, a Trinitarian song. When, um, in the old days, people used to sing the Psalms in churches, we always sang what they called the Gloria at the end of the psalm. Can anybody remember ever doing that? Some people probably still do, okay? It's great. You sing, glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, and a bit more to it as that. But I love the way we used to do that, because it immediately put the Psalms in a Christian, Trinitarian register. It was a really healthy thing to do. Rather than saying, let's pretend we're Old Testament Jews, we took them to the New Testament, as it were, and gave expression by singing the Gloria. So I want to sing a a little song with you that's around that glorifies Father, Son, and Spirit. And I need people that can remember it to help me. I'll teach you the song. It goes like this. Father, we adore you. Lay our lives before you. How we love you. And then it's very easy. Verse 2, you don't need to learn any more than that. Jesus, we adore you. Lay our lives before you, how we love you. Spirit, we adore you. Lay our lives before you, how we love you. Do you think you can master the the words? I'm now going to try the tune, okay? It goes like this, and join in if you know it, and then we'll try the round, okay? Father, we adore you. Lay our lives before you, how we love you. Jesus, we adore you. Lay our lives before you, how we love you. Spirit, we adore you. Lay our lives before you. How we love you. Well, that was, I enjoyed that as a unison thing. Now we've got to try and divide it up into three, and it'll go one block, two blocks, three blocks. Um, I'm not sure I know how to do this, but I know who I'm relying on. I'm relying on Monica and Steve, okay? (laughs) So I think what we need to do is Monica shift that way, Steve shift that way. Yeah, that's good, that's good. Um, Do we need microphones or not? No? It's nicer without microphones. Let's leave the microphones out of this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have to sing it slowly enough for it to work. It'll sound really good, okay? It'll encourage us in our praise of God. And so Monica's going to bring some people in. 
in the middle section, I think. And okay, let's just go for it and see what happens. Father, we adore you. Lay our lives before you. We adore you, lay our lives before you, how we love you, Spirit, we adore you, lay our lives before you, that I think even the non-singers quietly enjoyed that. Singing, part one, okay? Meditating, okay? On to a second thing. How are we going to cope in the fallen world, anticipating the glory? Singing will be part of it. Meditating. May my meditation be pleasing to him as I rejoice in the Lord. Verse 34. Um, I'm chewing this over more. Have you considered that Part of the value of singing God's word, part of why there's a whole hymn book in the Bible, Psalms was Israel's hymn book, presumably it is that once you put words to music, the words become more easily memorable. And they can reach our heart and our emotion. And they can influence our hearts and our emotions with the truth of God. In our family, we memorize Bible verses much more easily when we sing them. And verse 34 is a call to have not just a horizontal conversation with other people or a vertical conversation as we praise and worship God in heaven, but an internal conversation to meditate on God's truth as I rejoice in the Lord. I love the little echo there is from a few verses earlier in the psalm. God rejoices in verse 31 in the works in creation, his works, and we echo God's joy with our own joy and delight in him and meditate on what he's done. So let me encourage you. These are very brief bullet points. There's plenty more to say about it, but let me encourage you. When you hear a sermon or when you read the Bible at home, if you're in the habit of doing that, to crystallize your Bible reading into some sort of shortened, memorable form, a portable version, which you can carry with you through the day. We used to call it um, getting a best thought from your quiet time. If you manage to do that, I mean, there's no law to do this. I'm just giving you a a tip that I find helpful, certainly. If you manage to do that, it will mean for one thing, that you have something to share with somebody else, which might be really helpful to them, might be helpful to you to have something in your back pocket that you can share. But it also means, of course, if you think about it, you can meditate on God's truth. You can reheat 
the words of the Bible and the phrases later on. You can do it without a Bible even. Or by all means, you can open the Bible and read a verse again on your own. And maybe as you read it, emphasize a different word in the verse each time you reread it. I'm trying to give you some tips to help you with meditating on the Bible. There are all sorts of tricks. Sing it, summarize it, share it. And again, make it a part of your relationship with God. Pray about your meditation. That's what he's doing here. May my meditation be pleasing to him as I rejoice in the Lord. Okay, you don't do well with the singing. I'm going to give you a moment to do some meditating. Just a minute or so to meditate and rejoice in the Lord with Psalm 104 open in front of us. Okay, singing, meditating, and uh, verse 35, my, my word for that is waiting. I'll have to explain why that's relevant for verse 35. Let me read the verse out again. But may sinners vanish from the earth and the wicked be no more. And I suppose the point there is that in a fallen world, creation isn't so much a choir, it's often a battlefield, isn't it? And there's a time, the psalmist is reminding us, there's a time to fight as well as a time to sing. So our response to God's creation can be joyful and will obviously hit our hearts. But the psalm's reminding us that it is also exclusive. There is a dedication implied in our commitment to God's glory, a dedication to his victory and his reclaiming of a world that's gone wrong. So the final prayer is a commitment not just to the glory that now is, but the glory to come, the final consummation. But may sinners vanish from the earth and the wicked be no more. And that, of course, lies in the future. Now note, the psalmist is bringing that about not by purging the world of sin and evil himself. He's actually praying for God to act. And he's waiting expectantly for that day. And you might be nervous of praying this way, may sinners vanish from the earth and the wicked be no more. Isn't it rather judgmental to take that tone in prayer? But in a sense, we pray this way every time we pray the Lord's Prayer. We prayed it already this service. Martin Luther pointed out that when somebody prays, 
hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, then he said, you must put all the opposition to this, the kingdom and the name, the honor of God, in one pile and actually say, as you pray, curses, maledictions and disgrace upon every other name and kingdom. May they be ruined, he said, and torn apart. And may all their schemes and wisdom and plans run aground. I suppose at the end of the day, we're praying for nothing less than Christ's return and his ultimate overthrow of all that opposes his will. Now, there is a sense in which we can rightly pray for the opposition to be removed by people becoming Christians before Jesus returns. I like the story about Abraham Lincoln when he was being accused once of being a bit of a softy on his opponents. Somebody was saying to him, you need to destroy your enemies, not work so hard to pacify them. And Lincoln replied, do I not destroy my enemies when I make them into my friends? Good point. When we face opposition, we'll obviously pray for people to be transformed and for enemies to become friends as people submit to Jesus Christ. But where they won't bow the knee to Jesus, we wait patiently, praying ultimately for God to take action. Vengeance belongs to God, says the Bible, not to us. So waiting is the third step of how to live in a fallen world with the longing for God to be glorified. Well, time to conclude. The conclusion is that the psalm ends where it began. Praise the Lord, my soul. Praise the Lord. And it's such a helpful note to sound in a psalm which focuses so squarely on creation. Because this is where, this note of praise, we've had it throughout the service and hopefully throughout the series. This note of praise is where a Christian note, a distinctively Christian note, is sounded in the whole debate about the environment. Biblically speaking, when it comes to the created order, there are two errors to avoid. The first is to worship nature. And that was a straightforward mistake uh, repeated again and again in the ancient world. The Babylonians, the Egyptians, the Canaanites. The default religion was an idolatrous worship of creation, which the Old Testament roundly condemns because God created nature. It's wrong to worship the creature rather than the creator. Now, that idolatry of nature or earth is still very tempting today. Uh, you see it in all sorts of different ways. A romantic worship of the beauty of the world is very attractive to those who are wearied by modern technology or urban life. But our psalm doesn't worship nature for nature's sake. It admires nature as the creation of a great God. So that's one error to avoid, worshipping this world or worshipping creation or nature. A second error to avoid is to abuse nature. And this psalm testifies to our God-given authority over animals and sea, but we rule this world under the rule of God the creator, and he dictates the limits of our powers as he chooses. We're not rulers of God's world to do with it as we choose in our greed or destructiveness. It's his world, not ours. And to spoil it as if we are its Lord and Master is a kind of blasphemy. 
Now, what's the antidote to those two errors? We're not meant to worship nature or to abuse nature. Instead, we're to praise the creator of nature. And that's the emphasis, the take-home lesson of this psalm, surely. We admire what God has made, and so we adore the God who made it. So let me end where we began the series. Do you remember we started with a challenge, if you were here, about um, the preacher, Gypsy Smith. He was asked, what do you need to do to bring about revival? And he told the person, go home, get alone, and shut the door. Then get down on your knees and use some chalk to draw a circle around yourself. And then pray for the Holy Spirit to start the revival inside the circle. So they were asking sort of grand scheme, what do you do to get about a revival? Thinking he'd say, oh, this is what you do, organize this and the other. He had a very simple, narrow focus. He said, get home and revival starts here in my heart. Start the revival, as it were, inside the circle that you draw around yourself. And bearing in mind the first and last verse of our psalm, that it seems to me is the challenge for all of us. It's not primarily for me to address the world, important though that is, but first of all, to address my own soul. Praise the Lord, O my soul. So the challenge as I close is, how are we doing on that? Let's pray together. We pray for that inner work in our own lives, Heavenly Father, that you would put a song of praise in our hearts and then open our lips uh, more widely in the world after that. But please, Lord, revive us spiritually, one by one, to see how wonderful you are and to love and praise you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.